0: Don't forget, you're going to die. Welcome to the We Croak Podcast. I am your host, Hansa Pergwal. Yeah, the We Croak Podcast is about having conversations about things that we often avoid, starting with death, but not ending there. And that includes, you know, getting living right. Today, we have an amazing guest for you. Massimo Piliucci. He wrote How to Be a Stoic, which is a fantastic book. And I first learned about Massimo at uh, Night of Philosophy, which is an all-night philosophy event put on by the Brooklyn Public Library and uh, the French Embassy, thank you France, Uh, where they have philosophers and writers come in and deliver lectures at one, two in the morning uh, about philosophy. And I wandered into Massimo Pellucci's talk on stoicism. I think it was one in the morning or something like that. And it was this giant room full of stacks of books, and there was no room anywhere. I grabbed a tiny spot of floor on some linoleum tile, like crammed in between other people to listen about uh, Stoicism, and it was amazing. You didn't even, like, mind being crammed in there because, you know, these practical philosophies are so great. So I am so excited to have Massimo Pagliucci as a guest today. It's a great conversation. We touched on a lot of things. And here we go. Enjoy. Massimo Pagliucci, thank you so much for joining us today and for writing this book, How to Be a Stoic. I enjoyed it so much for a number of reasons, and for our listeners, I'll just say it's a great book. Uh, it kind of goes through and uh, is in dialogue with a lot of the Stoic philosopher masters, but it also is about how to be a Stoic today in the modern world and weaves in things like cognitive behavioral therapy and has that open attitude about wisdom and knowledge that you know even today we can make a contribution to. Uh, thought as amazing as this. Thank you for being here. Absolutely, a pleasure. I believe from reading your book that you were a philosophy teacher and professor before you were a, a Stoic. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into, well, one, philosophy, and second, Stoicism as a, a life practice?
1: Yeah, it's, it's kind of sounds funny still to say that somebody is a Stoic. But yes, so studying Stoicism. Um, my, my initial career was in biology, actually. I started out as a scientist, uh, as an evolutionary biologist. And I did that for you know, close to 25 years, and then I hit my midlife crisis, maybe a little early, um, like you know, in my early 40s. And I figured that I need to do something different. Uh, I always had an interest in philosophy. I had an opportunity to go back to school and get a, my, my degree in, in uh, philosophy. So I did that, and eventually, a few years later, I changed career now the thing is once you start studying philosophy seriously you just cannot avoid questions of ethics uh questions of you know sort of meaning of life i mean it is the it's usually presented as a joke you know that you go into a philosophy department and you ask about the meaning of life don't do that by the way because most most philosophers today don't actually think about that sort of stuff but you do read uh the ancients you'd read aristotle you read Epicurus. And those people were very much concerned with uh, how to live your life. So that kind of brought me to think about how I was living my life and where I was going and what things were important and for what reason. You know, this is typical stuff that you get uh, when you're in a midlife crisis. So I started exploring some possible answers. And the first stop was, in fact, Aristotle, who uh, is the most famous uh, exponent of of an approach in ethics that is called virtual ethics. Virtue ethics is about improving your character. is is making your life goal to be a better person. So Aristotle is the starting point, and I studied Aristotle, and it was very interesting. But it comes across as a little bit of a um, aristocratic uh, sort of position because, for instance, he says that yeah, yeah, it's very important to improve your character and to become a moral person, but. In order to have a good life, you also have uh, to, you know, be a little bit wealthy, a little bit educated. He even says have some good looks because otherwise your life is going to suck. Life is going to suck. So okay, well that doesn't really sound right. That excludes a lot of people from a life worth living. So I move to the next uh, guy. The next guy within the virtual ethics tradition is Epicurus. Now Epicurus is, you know, often thought today as the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Uh, a philosophy. But it was nothing like that. Epicureanism is actually about taking pleasure from the you know, from the small things in life. Simple meals, friendship, you know, a quiet life. But mostly it's about avoiding pain. Epicurus thought that it was the most important thing in life is avoiding pain. And that's the problem because then he cancelled to disengage from society and especially from political activity because those are very painful. Um, and we, you know, we know that he has a point. Um, politics is, is definitely a painful uh, activity, um, no matter what level you engage in it. But that didn't do it for me. I always thought that a major thing in, in a person's life that, that adds meaning is, in fact, being socially active and, and politically involved. So that didn't do it either. So I, w- I got to the point where I realized that virtual ethics was about in the right ballpark, that that's what I needed to uh, make some improvement and some rethinking about my life. But neither Aristotle nor Epicurus, uh, which were the the obvious first couple of stops, were actually doing it. So I was at that point, and one day on on my Twitter feed I see this thing that says, help us celebrate Stoic Week. And I said, what the hell is Stoic Week? And why would anybody want to celebrate Stoicism as a philosophy? And I was curious, I looked into it, and I signed up for it, and basically what it is, it's it's done every year by a group, organized by a group of philosophers and cognitive behavioral therapists, initially based in London and at the University of Exeter in England, and now pretty much worldwide. And what it is, is you sign up, uh, you're given a sort of a series of questionnaires to assess your own opinions about your life and, and what you value and so on and so forth, and then you download a manual. And for a week, you live like a stoic, meaning that uh, you read a little bit about stoic philosophy and history, uh, you do some exercises, there is a theme for, for every day, and then at the end of the week, you sort of have a, a number, fill out a, another number of questionnaires that are, are supposed to assess how you did during the week. So I did it just for fun. Like, yeah, well that's an unusual thing to do, especially for a practical, uh, for, for practicing philosopher, so, so somebody who's actually a professional philosopher. And it worked out very interestingly. So I felt that that was actually opening up a number of new ways of thinking about stuff. And I felt interesting and good enough that I contacted the organizers and I said, look, I'm gonna commit to do this for another couple of months until the end of the year, because usually Stoic Week is in the fall. You know, can you help me send me some more resources, And which they did very, very nicely. So I did it until the end of the year. And then uh, by the end of the year, I felt that my way of thinking about a number of things was definitely changing for the better, and my friends and family told me that I was much less irritable, uh, I was you know definitely handling things better. so I said, oh well that's, maybe that's a good reason to commit for another year, which I did, and then now we're, here we are four years later, and I'm still doing it.
0: very cool, stoic week, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> I want to yeah. go yeah. you know. One thing I've learned since uh, beginning, you know, this whole We thing is that there's a lot more practicing Stoics in the world than people really know about. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Because I hear from them. You know, I think we have this idea of what, like, a classical Roman Stoic is, but what does it mean to you to be a a modern Stoic in the world? What what does that look like, you know, on a day-to-day level?
1: Yeah, I'll tell you first what it doesn't look like, because there's a couple of very common misconceptions about Stoicism. Uh, one is that it's a philosophy that, that attempts to uh, suppress emotions. And the other one is that it is, uh, that the basic idea is to go go through life with a stiff upper lip, basically. and It's about endurance, and that's it. Neither one of those is true, but they are basing a little bit of a, of a enough of a truth that it's worth uh, uh, talking about it for a second. So, one of the goals of stoic practice is to not suppress, but reorient your emotional spectrum. Uh, you want to move away from unhealthy emotions such as fear, hatred, anger, uh, especially anger, for which the Stoics thought is a temporary madness, um, and it's definitely not a good thing, uh, and toward positive emotions such as joy, love, uh, a sense of justice, and that sort of things. So that's, that's one of the major goals. It is true also that there is a component of endurance but that endurance isn't that doesn't have much to do with with the sort of the stereotype uh, of the stiff upper lip. It has to do with the fact that a basic story principle is uh, what we call the dichotomy of control. This idea that certain things are under our control and other things are not under our control and that it is a rash, rational in life to focus on things that are under your control because that's where you can actually act and make a difference in your life. And the rest, ignore. Ignore not in the sense that it's not, in, they're not important. I mean, there's plenty of things that I don't control and they're very important. But if I don't control them, if I can't do anything about them, then it's not a useful uh, uh, you know, use of my time, emotional energy, and so on and so forth to worry about it. I'll worry about it when and if I can actually do something about it. Now, you ask me what, what does it look like on a, on a day-to-day basis. Pretty much, you, you do some exercises regularly, either daily or at least weekly. One of my, my favorite exercise is the evening philosophical diary. Uh, basically, before going to bed every night, I take a few minutes to go over uh, the day, and I pose myself three questions that Epictetus, the slave-turned-teacher in the second century, who was a major Stoic philosopher, uh, said that we should ask ourselves. And, and, and those questions are, what did you do wrong? What did you do right? And how could you have done it differently? What are you gonna do differently? What, what remains to be done? So the idea is that if you ask yourself what it is that you did wrong, it's not to sort of indulge in kind of self-flagellation and regret or things. Those are irrelevant for the Stoics because those, are, those actions are in the past, and therefore they're outside of your control. It's not, it's not useful to indulge in that kind of thinking. But you do want to learn from your mistakes. So by writing them down, you reflect on the fact that, oh yeah, today I did this thing that really wasn't particularly good. And of course, we're not talking necessarily about major things, even even minor things. You know, I, I didn't react well to a situation or I didn't treat well a person, that sort of stuff. right?
0: So every night you spend some time contemplating your day yeah. and writing down. How much time would you say you spent? Five or 10 know, minutes. Or just five or 10
1: minutes? Yeah, yeah that's right. Can you
0: think of one example of something you wrote in your journal recently?
1: Yeah, sure. Just a few days ago, for instance, I got irritated uh, with a friend um, in a situation that uh, it really was not her fault, and I should not have gotten irritated. Well, first of all, getting irritated is not useful to begin with, uh, but in particular, in that, in that situation, I just, you know, I probably didn't feel good for my own reasons. Uh, it, it just I did not react well. So I made a point of writing that down because that is one of the things, the kind of behaviors that I'm trying to get away from. The thing that I did right, however, and that was in the second column of the same, for the same, for the same day, in the second entry in the same day, is that I immediately realized that and I apologized. And, you know, so it took me a, you know, second or two to say, oh, wait, hold on. I really should not have done, done this. So I apologized and, and I tried to sort of makes things, things better. And then, of course, the, the immediately those two lead you to the obvious answer to the third question, which is what remains to be done? Well, apparently working on my readability remains to be, it's one of the things that remains to be done, it's one of the things that it's uh, uh, that is one of my goals. So that's a typical example uh, of things. It could have, it, it might have to do with anything that happened in, during the day, obviously, but that's a particular example.
0: And over time, how does that kind of practice shift, you know, the story of living for you?
1: So I noticed that the idea is that you become more mindful about these things because it, you re, certain behaviors repeat over and over. Um, and in fact, uh, if you look at Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, for instance, which was in fact his personal diary, it was not meant for publication. This was this was his own reminder to himself of the kinds of things that he ought to do and not ought to do. Now, people say when you, if you read the Meditations, which I think it's a it's a beautiful book and it's been. You know, in print uh, ever since the, the invention of the printing press. But people that read it for the first time, they tend to notice two things that, that Marcus is repetitive and that he's kind of preaching. But there's obvious reasons for that. Again, he's not writing for an audience, he's writing to himself. So he's repetitive. Because the same kind of things keep happening to him, and he reminds himself, like, okay, you you fell for this again. You know, you you thought that you were not going to do this again, but now, but but it happened. So, it's trying to remind himself, and he's preaching in the sense that he's reminding himself of the kinds of things that he should do or should not do. So, the same idea is underlies uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which was inspired in the back in the 50s and 60s by uh, the early the, the ancient Stoics. The idea is as the term implies, cognitive, behavioral, is the first step is cognition. You want to admit that you have a problem or you want to realize what is it, the kind of behavior you want to change. And then you practice, you repeat it over and over and over, trying to nudge your behavior in a better direction. That's such
0: a good example of Marcus Aurelius and meditations because here, I mean, in history, he's one of the best Roman emperors, yep. right? Yep. And here's this book of his private thoughts constantly Trying and failing to meet his own standards of virtue, (laughs) exactly, Uh, and how inspiring that is. It's really inspiring,
1: and and millennia later, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, that's really, really cool. And just you know, for our listeners, I learned a lot from this book about what it means to practice a virtue philosophy, because it is very practical, like that we were just talking about. And it basically comes down to there are certain categories of things that are most important that you will not compromise on if you can. Right. And other categories of things that you know, you might have if you can have them, but they can never be sacri- they can never come in front of your uh, most important practicing of your virtues. So, yes, can you sir. just talk a little bit about about that and what that means?
1: Yeah. So the Stoics uh, make a distinction between really two classes of things: the virtues, uh, which are they recognize four fundamental virtues or so four aspects of your character that you should try to improve and cultivate. And then pretty much everything else. And their idea is that the four virtues are in the sort of A set, they're in the A category. They're the most important thing that you wanna work on and you don't wanna compromise them. Everything else falls into the B set and the B set, there are are things in the B set that are preferred and things that are, as they say, dispreferred. preferred So for instance, uh, well, w- w- first of all, let me give you the, 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 the basic list of the four categories, the, f- the, f- the four uh, virtues. The four virtues are practical wisdom, which is the ability to navigate complex situations in life in the best uh, way possible, uh, especially the best ethical way possible. Right. So let me give you an example. We all have roles in society. We are uh, fathers, we are sons, we are colleagues, we're friends, we are partners, and so on and so forth. Well, these roles come with trade-offs. You know, we only have so much time and energy and resources and so on and so forth, so you have to make choices. And the idea of practicing practical wisdom is to navigate these kind of trade-offs in, the, in, the, in a way that is the most just possible, That is, that respects your commitments to other people, uh, or revises your, your commitment, if in fact it needs to be revised. So that's practical wisdom. The second one is courage which is not meant as, you know, sort of physical courage, you know, going screaming into battle or anything like that. It's the courage of doing the right thing. So it's, again, it's a moral, it has an ethical uh, dimension to it. Justice, which is the idea that, well, in order to do the right thing, you ought to know what the right thing to do is, and that's the virtue of justice, figuring out what is actually that you should do and should not do. And finally, temperance. The idea that you should do everything in good measure. Do not overreact or underreact. You don't want to underestimate situations, but you also don't want to overestimate uh, situations. These four, uh, th- these are the four, so-called four cardinal virtues, which you find in other traditions, uh, in fact, all over the world. Particularly, of course, in Christianity, uh, the Christians did get them straight from the Stoics, and then they added Thomas Aquinas added three more, uh, which are uh, hope, faith, and charity, and which make the seven uh, the seven virtues for Christians. So. So the virtues are in the A set, in the top, at the top priority. Meaning that those are the most important thing. Why are they the most important thing? Because they they're never going to let you down. These are four tools for living your life that, by definition, cannot be misused. You cannot be uh, practicing justice and do the wrong thing. You cannot be courageous in an ethical uh, in an ethical sense and do the wrong thing. Yeah, you, know, you cannot be temperate and do the wrong thing, and so on and so forth. Everything else on the other end can be used for good or for ill. So let's say one of the things that most people value is uh, wealth, but wealth is, for the Stoics, a preferred indifferent, meaning that it's indifferent to uh, your virtue, to your moral character. Being rich doesn't make you a better person, and being poor doesn't make you a worse person than you are. It's indifferent, it's, it's, it's irrelevant but not only that it can be used for good or for bad so and and how do you know that how do you know how to use your wealth well the four virtues tell you how to do that so the four virtues are your compass basically that tell you how to use everything else in life and once you start thinking in in those um along those lines it's really amazing how it changes your life pretty dramatically and pretty quickly so I'll, uh, an example that is in in the book um soon after I started practicing and started paying attention to these things, I was doing one of the regular things that I do, you know, every week. I went to the bank to get some money from my ATM. And I got the money and then I went out at a bank and then I stopped and I said, oh crap, I realized that my bank at the time was actually a fairly major corporate bank that was known to be involved, having been involved in questionable practices, uh, both in terms of labor practices and and influence throughout the world. So I just turned around, 180 degrees, and went into the bank, and I told them that I was going to close my account. And it was interesting to see the face of the person that asked me why I was closing the account. You know, he said, "Uh, so do you our services are not good. And I said, actually, your services are probably better than the next bank that I'm going to. But, you know, your corporate culture is not aligned with my values. And he's like, he's my values. All right, fine. I'll write that down <laughs> for my supervisor. I said, well, go ahead. Now, that's a, that's a minor thing. That's a small thing. But it's one of those things that immediately come to mind. You know, a few minutes later, I walked into a grocery store. And so now I started paying attention to what, what I was buying. Uh, the kind of food, where it was coming from, uh, if it it actually had been uh, coming to me through the suffering of animals or through the exploitation of people and so on and so forth. Now, there is a limit to this. You don't want to spend your entire life every minute sort of making these kind of decisions constantly because otherwise you're going to be paralyzed. Um, Also because it's impossible to get out of, you know, to change your behavior in modern society in a way that becomes totally and completely ethical. We just don't have the opportunities, because it's it's all over the place. But that's where your practical wisdom comes in. You figure out, okay, I can do certain things right now, right here, let's start with those. I can improve it. The goal, as Seneca said uh, in one of the letters to, that he wrote to his friend Lucilius, is not to become perfect, it's to become better than yesterday. And so little by little, bit by bit, day by day.
0: Hey, it's Hunza Bergwall and Ian Thomas. We're the guys making We Croak happen, reminding you five times a day that you're going to die, and also now having deeper conversations about things people don't talk about enough, starting with death, but uh, not ending there. If you want to show your support, and really, we want you to show your support, go to WeCroak.com, hit the Become a Patron button, uh, to tell us that you value this, these kinds of conversations, you want to see more of them, or, you know, go uh, and write us and tell us to find something to advertise. We'll do it your way, uh, but we do want to hear from you. Just keep sending along all of your wonderful comments and quotations. We love reading them, and we love putting your wisdom and your ideas and your quotes into our, our great little app, and we are just incredibly excited that you want to keep coming along with us on this amazing journey that started you know, just about a year ago. And we want to keep growing it and growing it um, as much as possible. So thank you for being a part of it. And thank you for listening. Yeah, we like quotes and we like suggestions of who to interview. If you want to tell us uh, who we should ask, how they feel about their eminent demise, uh, then let us know and we'll see if we can get them on our show. And now back to our conversation. (laughs) So, of course, this is the podcast where we ask interesting people about how they feel about their temporary nature. Right. And there's a whole chapter in this book about death, uh, also some about suicide, as well as in a practice section. You know, some really heartfelt parts about uh, that I think are worth reading about uh, death of your parents and things like that. So a few questions about some of these things that you wrote. And I'm going to start with... Um, You know, one thing you wrote in the spiritual exercises about just things to remind yourself when you find that you're fond of something. So for instance, say, I am fond of a piece of china. When it breaks, then you won't be as disconcerted. When giving your wife or child a kiss, repeat to yourself, I am kissing a mortal. Then you won't be so distraught if they are taken from you.
1: Right. That's a piktitos, yeah. Yeah.
0: Can you just talk a little bit about Yep. About that, and yep. do you practice that?
1: I do actually. Uh, it sounds pretty harsh the way Epictetus puts it, right? Uh, Epictetus is was famous for being pretty blunt uh, with his with his students about these sort of things. And it, of course, in modern language, that does sound uh, harsh. We we do need to remember who was was uh, Epictetus and in what, in what time he was living. I mean, this was a time in the second century in the Roman Empire where the possibility that your child would die overnight was actually fairly high. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, who was the emperor, and therefore the most powerful person in the world at the time, in the Western world at the time, and he had the best physician available in the ancient world, Galen. And yet, he had 15 children, of whom only, I think, six or seven survived until adulthood. Um, so so this kind of thing was pretty normal. So what Epictetus is saying there is uh, is referring to things that actually are were, were part of their, their their experience Now for us today fortunately most of us at least uh, today in the Western world that's not the case although there's still surprisingly many places in the world where that is still pretty much the situation that people can die from one day to another including including children. Uh, for us it's a little bit less um, less obvious that you know that, that the, applica- the direct applicability of that. But it does still happen. But to it people does still right happen right here in New York City and the United States. Absolutely. Um, and so the idea is not, of course, to develop sort of some kind of callousness about uh, about the death of people. But uh, the idea is to accept what happens with equanimity. Death is a natural process. It's something that happens. There's nothing you can do about it. You can try to avoid it, of course, or delay it, or whatever it is. But eventually, it's going to happen. So you have to be prepared for it, both your death and death of people who uh, are close to you. Hopefully, you know, if you're a father or a mother, you're not gonna have to experience your child's death. That's particularly traumatic. But you certainly will experience your parents' death, and probably the death of, of some of your friends, and so on and so forth. So this is something that we have an attitude in modern society, especially in American society, to try to avoid. We don't talk about death, we don't talk about the dead, we don't want to see dead people, and, and, and this is rather unusual in the history of humanity including the history of Western civilization. I was just reading, actually, today before you came in, of um, um, there was, a, for a long time in uh, um, in India, uh, because of Buddhist practices, uh, that people were simply put into the streets into specific locations so that others could actually walk by and see them, uh, you know, little by little decay. And the idea was, you know, this is what's going to happen to you. So. Now, this this all sounds very morbid and and stuff, but in fact, there is a positive point to it, which is precisely because we are mortal, precisely because everything we have is gonna be gone, then that's even more reason, in fact, it it is the reason to pay attention to the here and now and enjoy what you have. Epictetus, in in another uh, bit of the the discourses, uh, explains this by using the analogy of a fig. Uh, he says, you know, if you, if you wish for a fig in winter, then you're a fool. But when, when the summer comes and the figs are there, that's the time when you actually wanna eat the figs and enjoy the figs. And it's the same with everything else in, in life, including your children, your parents. Uh, as you say, I, I write about the death of both of my parents and uh, uh, my mother died after I started practicing stoicism and, and uh, um, you know, 10 years after my father. And those experiences were very different. Or uh, they're very different because I was much more mindful about what was happening. I wasn't in, in denial for years. I just did not take seriously my father's illness until it was too late. Uh, when it happened to my mother, I immediately realized what was going on. I took it seriously and I acted accordingly, trying to spend as much time as possible with her and and sort of really saying goodbye as opposed to just uh, put my my sand you know my head in the sand and, and, and ignoring it until the last minute.
0: Yeah, that was actually. One of the parts of the book where it was well really moving because you were talking about something that you know everyone goes through at some point, you know death and impermanence. But also, it really was where the rubber hit the road. You know, you're, you're doing this practice and it's kind of fun. You know, you're writing in a journal. Right. But when it came to a big life event like the death of a loved one, uh, there was a way in which you had some regrets about um, how you showed up at the time of your father's passing. Right. That you were able to have more pride and I guess you know the the way you practiced your virtues uh, the, the next time and showed up exactly um, so how did that change the experience of grief for you because obviously losing a loved one is always hard sure but there's something else where you say like it's better to feel like you did it well can you talk about that
1: yeah exactly I think that's exactly right it's better to, you know it is in a, uh, unavoidable it, it, it's going to happen uh, you have no control over that one But you do control how you react and how you um, experience uh, the 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 event, and so yes, having done it better, it leaves you with a much better memory of the situation, right? It leaves you with less regret, uh, uh, you know, less "oh, I should have done this, I should have spent more time, I should have said this," and so on and so forth. Now, it doesn't make it pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about about it, and it doesn't make it less hard as it is happening. I mean, Stoicism is a philosophy of life, it's not a magic wand. Uh, you know, you don't take it as a pill to solve your, your life problems. Uh, and, and presumably, I would think, in fact, I would argue, you don't want to um, have, you know, sort of the pain going going away. You don't. You still want to feel as a human being. Again, back to this uh, stereotype of the Stoics as sort of unfeeling people, uh, both Epictetus and, and Seneca explicitly say, you do want to feel What's going on, including the pain and and the suffering, because you don't want to turn into uh, an automaton, into into something, you know, into something that is not human. But at the same time, you also want to put things in perspective. Uh, It helps the recovery from the from from grieving, for instance, to put things in perspective, to to sort of say, remind yourself, look. One of these days is going to happen to me, and it's happened to everybody before, and it will happen to everybody after me. And in fact, that is a necessary part of life. This is how I came to, to be alive to begin with, because other people had died before me. It's uh, as a biologist, I understand that particularly well. Uh, this is, you know, this is, this is uh, not only a natural, but arguably a necessary component of the cycle of life. It also helps to think about, you know, in a somewhat more abstract terms, as Marcus Aurelius often does. Um, reminding himself of, sort of taking what in Stoicism is called the, the view from above, right? So the, the, the long view of things. Like, you remember that it's not just the people die. Cities dies. Civilizations dies. Planets dies. You know, the entire universe goes through change. In fact, everything changes constantly. The uh, Stoics were highly influenced by one of the um, preeminent um, pre-Socratic philosophers, Heraclitus, and Heraclitus was famous for his saying of Pantare, everything flows, everything changes. He's the guy that said that you'd never step in the same river twice because the river has changed. It's not the same water, it's not the same currents, and so on and so forth. And this idea of constant change, I find it at least, uh, it's it gives you solace. It, it says, like, you know, I'm, I'm a part of this bigger thing uh, over which I have no control, so what are my two choices? Either I Kick and scream against it, and do and and end up being miserable, or I just accept it as it is, trying to develop uh, the stoic attitude of equanimity. Equanimity doesn't mean that you don't care; it just means you accept things that are inevitable.
0: That's that's really great, and one of the things, on the one hand, you know, there's this greater perspective you get about you know objectifying things and looking clearly at life and taking it. For truth but there is this there's this whole chapter in your book about love and friendship as well yeah. and i just want to underline that the human element is here and it's very like deeper and stranger than a lot of our modern ideas about love and friendship yeah. for example you know there's none of that i'll do anything for love thing in stoicism because you have your virtues and right. if a lover or a father or someone were to ask you to do something that's unjust, you wouldn't do it under stoicism. Correct. So there's none of that. And yet there's a way in which they show up for relationships and family and friends and center those things in a way that is really amazing and that I think I would want to aspire to as a modern person because I don't know almost anyone who have that level of commitment to their friendships and families. Can Can you just talk a little bit about that vision of... How, where's, how Stoicism treats the people in their life?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're right, this is, this is it is a deeper um, way of thinking about love and friendship. By the way, the Stoics don't make a sharp distinction between love and friendship, uh, interestingly. Uh, the ancient Greeks used four or five different words uh, for love, and which is one of the limitations of the English language, that we use the same word for, for much every form of it. Uh, but these four or five words indicated things that kind of were, did not have sharp boundaries. Uh, for instance, just very recently, I was uh, reading a, a really interesting book by Margaret Craver, uh, who is a scholar of uh, ancient philosophy and uh, the book is called Stoicism and Emotion. And she pointed out that the Stoics actually said that they, you should cultivate eros. Now, eros is one of the four or five words that I that I, mentioned the Greeks used for for uh, um, love and now we obviously associate that with sex with you know the erotic erotic means you know doing something sexual which is fine the Stoics said, however had a concept of eros just actually the Greeks in general not just the Stoics it was much more encompassing than what we think of it today it did include physical uh, you know love making but it also was um, supposed to be, the physical love making was supposed to be the entry point into a journey that ends up in deep friendship with the person that you are, that is your lover. And so uh, there's this bit in the Stoic uh, literature where they say that Eros is in fact does not need justification. The wise person will feel eros for the person that he or she finds beautiful because it's the natural thing to do for human beings. And it's a it's it's this idea of a very deep, intimate relationship that you have with somebody else, which includes the physical. Physical is perfectly normal for a human beings, so we're not talking about asceticism here, uh, or, or being prudent about pr- uh, prudent about these kind of things. So I like that, as you say, it, it's something to aspire uh, to. Uh, it's not easy. Uh, it's it's something again you want to cultivate mindfully, and the way you do it is by again paying attention to what you're doing every day. Right? Sometimes maybe you're not uh, behaving in the best possible way with respect to the person that, that you love, and then you stop and and say, well. Why did I do that? What was the problem here? Can I do better? One of the, the things that really changed the way I, th- I think about this is, again, the dichotomy of control. So remember, this is, this is the idea that certain things are under your control and, and other things are not, right? And then you should focus on the first one, not the second one. Well, in the case of a relationship, a lot of us say, oh, I want her to love me, or I want to be loved, and right, so on and so forth. Well, that's not under your control. This is not something you get to decide, it's the other person. What you, what you can do is to be the most lovable person that you can, to be the most affectionate, to be the person that deserves to be loved, other things being equal. So in other words, the effort is up to you, but not the outcome. And again, the outcome should be, uh, of course, uh, taken by with equanimity. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes relationships last and sometimes they don't. Uh, and if they last, enjoy them while they last. If they don't, um, accept it. It's a fact of life. You don't control everything. You don't control the universe. And it's very liberating uh, once you really start letting go of this uh, control issue, uh, this, this idea that we're we're taught, in, you know, especially again in American modern American society, that we have a lot of control about a, a lot of a lot of stuff. That control is important. Power is important. You want to control your life. You want to make your life in you know, shape your life into whatever it is that you want to do. That's not just not the way life works. Now, you want to do, you want to try to do the best of what you, what you can do in all areas of life, in terms of personal relationships, in terms of your career, in terms of anything. But always with this uh, reminder to yourself. Uh, the Stoics have, have a phrase that I actually use uh, in, with myself pretty much every day, which is fate permitting. right? Now, that's not because I believe in fate as in I'm destined to do something. It's just a, g- a genetic phrase to remind you, that's so a nice phrase, I think, to remind you of the fact that the attempt is up to you, the outcome isn't. And so, you know, if I give you an appointment today, as you know, you just came in, uh, and had to deal with the, with the New York City subway, right? So you gave me an appointment at a particular time. That was your intention. And you did your best to keep your intention, right? But then there's this the New York City subway system that gets in the way. <laughs> <laughs> right? So you say, I'll be there at 2 o'clock, fate permitting.
0: <laughs> exactly, fate permitting. So in this case, in FTA permitting. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I like about the personal story that you just shared, as well as this book, is, you know, you started your journey with Stoicism at a Stoic week, where I assume you met a lot of people, perhaps, who became friends, or at least uh, were people that you met there. And that in the practice of this book, and, you know, talking about love and friendship, is that this contemplative, deliberative, philosophical life is is best practiced not alone. Right. You know, it's with other people. And this idea of making friendships with people who are also contemplative or deliberative being a part of the journey and making it a lot easier, as well as finding mentors who can inspire you to live better and to really develop deep, you know, love for these people in your life. So I was going to ask you if there are a couple mentors or, or people in your life that you want to talk about uh, that have, you know, shown you like a little bit about how to live better as a, a stoic. and a
1: Yeah, so that's a, that's interesting question. There are some people that inspire me within the, the, the Stoic community, which is, as you were saying earlier, fairly large. There is a, a Facebook uh, international community, which is, I think, more than 35,000 people at this point. So It's fairly large. Uh, and there are local groups. I mean, I run a local group in, in, here in New York uh, where we meet once or twice a month. Uh, there's a friend of mine who runs another one also here in New York. So there's there an international thing called the Stoic Fellowship that actually keeps track of groups all over the world. And yes, you're right. Uh, this has a lot to do with social interactions. Yes. Uh, Stoicism is an inherently social um, uh, philosophy. One of the basic, um, most important, arguably, Stoic ideas is that a cosmopolitanism, is, is the idea that we are all here members of the same big city, the, the city of humanity, and we're we all here to, to uh, help each other. In fact, Marcus Aurelius explicitly says that's the goal in life to help other people in the most reasonable and most, most effective way possible. Now, in terms of, of mentors and role models, so the, the idea of a role model is big in stoicism. It's big because, and, and this, this can be, the Stoics used um, uh, role models that, are, that were either people that they knew or people that they didn't know about uh, personally, but they knew ab- enough about them uh, that they could be used as a role model. Or, in fact, sometimes there are fictitious role models, like uh, one of the uh, most famous fictitious role models for the ancient Starks was Odysseus uh, because of his uh, endurance and bravery and, and and the persistence of wanting to go back to his home and, and his son and his, and his wife. So sorry, he was a you know, virtuous person in that sense. The idea of a role model is important. Seneca said, uh, "You know, you, you're not going to realize that you're crooked unless you actually can compare yourself with something that is straight." And uh, so, you, the, it's too easy, we would say in modern parlance, to uh, rationalize your, your your shortcomings away. Right? So you can you can do your little diary in the evening and then convince yourself that everything was fine and you did nothing wrong. It's when you start comparing yourself and your notes about yourself with other people, then then, then things really start um, sort of becoming interesting. So the idea is that you choose more than one, actually, role model. Uh, anybody who inspires you, either directly or indirectly, whether you know them or not, becomes a way uh, by which you measure yourself, you know, how, how crooked uh, you, you, you are. So yes, there are, in my case, there are friends that I know, that I have, you know, the intimate friends, uh, that I look up to in terms of their behavior and their integrity. Um, there are role models that I pick from so society at large, and there are fictional role models. Like you know, So a, a classic role model for modern uh, Stoics, for instance, um, is uh, Nelson Mandela, who uh, you know endured what he endured for 27 years in a, in a, under near impossible conditions. And one of the interesting things that I found out recently about Mandela that I, I did not know uh, is that in fact it was influenced by Marcus Aurelius when he was in uh, yeah when he was in prison uh, and he was very angry uh, understandably at, uh, at his cap- captors and his and, and the apartheid government. Um, one of his uh, um, mates uh, cellmates uh, smuggled around a copy of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, and apparently that had a major impact on uh, on Mandela. So it's kind of an interesting, sort of cross-cultural. Uh, example of how uh, Stoic ideas can help can be helpful. Now the important thing is these people don't need to be perfect. Role models are not perfect. Even the fictional ones are not. Odysseus had his its own character flaws, but that's why they're good role models, because they're not perfect. They're just better in certain respects than what than, than you are. You're, you're, um, it's difficult for the Christian for instance, I think. I, I grew up Christian, uh, you know, Catholic, and it's difficult for a Christian because your role model literally is a god, right? So it's, it's, he's perfect, it's, it's just, um, there's no way that I'm gonna ever be like Jesus. Um, yeah, I can aspire to get as close as possible to being a good person, but that's just impossible by definition. On the other hand, if my role model is somebody who I know is flawed, and, and he's flawed for certain in certain ways and certain reasons, but I also know he's better than I am, then, then it's the next goalpost. post.
0: Yeah, I noticed in the book that, you know, role models the ones that are really famous tended to be like Nelson Mandela or, you know, a, a stoic prisoner of war mm-hmm. where, you know, they really went through tough times that it's hard to imagine right. and yet managed to do it with a kind of grace and integrity nonetheless. Exactly. Which is sort of the like we hope that thing doesn't happen to us, but if we did, we hoped we could know behave as well as this person
1: there is also another way to put it which i think is is uh, very practical which is look if nelson mandela was able to withstand 27 years of prison can i really not deal with you know my annoying boss uh you know during the day or can i not really deal with this minor irritation that comes out because of everyday life it's like come on let like, put things in proportion. You know, there are yeah. people that really endure things. <laughs>
0: Perspective. <laughs> exactly. Uh, speaking of that, do, do you do a Momento Mori practice in your own stoic kind of daily?
1: Yeah, I do it, not daily. Uh, it's not. A, I don't think it's the kind of practice that needs to be done or even it's not a good idea to be done daily. Uh, there are some practices that you do uh, once in a while during the week or during the month, and uh, depending on what you need and depending on, on uh, who you are and what, you need, your, what your personality is. I do the Memento Mori uh, several times a month, maybe, and it takes different forms. Uh, uh, sometimes it just takes a, the, the form of uh, meditation in the morning, uh, sort of reflection on, on mortality of things. Other times I just go to a cemetery. Um, there's, uh, there's a wonderful one here in, in Manhattan, um, in uh, lower, you know, near Wall Street. Uh, there's a, this beautiful church that has a cemetery. Uh, very quiet cemetery, and it's surrounded by all the the, the skyscrapers and the, and the activity of New York, and it's a really nice contrast because it reminds you that all these activity, all this hustle and bustle, and all that sort of stuff, everybody's going to end up eventually six feet under. So, um, yeah, so I do it, um, but but not every day. It's it's not the kind of thing that I think it's needed necessarily that often. It's just an occasional reminder of yeah, that's going to happen, and what are you doing in the meantime?
0: Yeah live the life as best you can in perspective. So, you know, obviously not everyone is a philosophy professor, but it sounds like this is a really practical philosophy that most people can get something from. And I definitely recommend, if uh, you out there listening are interested in trying out some Stoic ideas for yourself, How to Be a Stoic by Massimo Piliucci. And I was wondering if you also had some uh, maybe simple Steps or ideas someone could take if they wanted to get started on like playing with some of these ideas and these practices for themselves.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm glad you pointed out that it doesn't require a philosophy professor to do these kind of things. I mean, you, you probably want to be a philosophy professor if you want to write about it, and especially from a you know an historical perspective and so on and so forth. Uh, but practicing, it's actually not that difficult. I mean, Stoic philosophy. Like a lot of practical philosophies and religions, religions are a form of practical philosophy, for that matter, right? I mean, every religion comes with uh, ethics, uh, a theory of ethics, a theory of metaphysics embedded, and so that's, they're basically philosophies, except that their source is supposed to be a divine inspiration instead of, of human. But to become a good Christian, a good Stoic, or a good Buddhist, it doesn't really take a lot of theory. The theory is pretty simple. You can pick it up blogs online you can pick up a book there's all sorts of ways you can do it you can talk to somebody it's a practice that it's that makes a difference right i mean you don't you're not a christian just because you go to church once a week Uh, you're a christian because you listen to the preacher you read the gospel and then you really try it as much as possible to live according to certain precepts the precepts are simple in the case of stoicism the the precepts are simply pay attention to what you're doing in the here and now remember the dichotomy of control and keep in mind the four virtues it's pretty much it you, you, there's a lot of other stuff you can add in there a lot of nuance and a lot of interesting historical facts but pretty much those are the, the fundamental pillars uh the difficulty of course is, is to actually put them in pra- into, into practice it can be done i think it should be done i think this would be a better world if people practice not just sources necessarily but pretty much any positive philosophy of life or any positive religion. If people really were paying attention and trying to do a little bit better, every day this would be a much better place.
0: I agree with that (laughs) 100,000%. And Thank you for your book and sharing your message about how to use some of these old ideas today, really with a lot of style and grace, and no matter how hard the times come or how easy. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much for having me. In case you were curious, Stoic Week
0: 2018 begins this October 1st. We'll put a link in the show notes if you want to learn more. Until then, if you have a moment or two, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, keep your eyes peeled for more episodes.